0: authors have complete creative control over the stories that they are writing. You could say they are the sovereign ones who are writing the story, creating and informing the characters in the story, unfolding according to their intentions and their purposes. Uh, this is true of somebody like C.S. Lewis or J.K. Rowling, or Shakespeare, or even Dr. Seuss. Everything is unfolding according to their intentions and their desires. You see, C.S. Lewis was the one who determined whether and when and how that he was going to show redemption to Edmund and judgment to the White Witch. J.K. Rowling was the one who intended and determined that it would be Harry that would experience her redemptive work along with Snape. Whereas Bellatrix and Voldemort would experience the justice and judgment that they deserved. We, we look at that and we see that, that in, in all of it, it's their intentions and their purposes. The characters aren't writing the story The author is sovereign and unfolding it according to his intentions and purposes. But at the same time, as we think about stories, it's not just the author. There's responsibility of those in the stories as well. Nobody, if you bumped into uh, Theodore Geisel, Dr. Seuss, for others that don't know, would ever blame him for the mess in the kid's living room before their mom came home. No, the responsibility for that completely falls on the cat in the hat. Nobody, if you were walking in London and happened to bump into J.K. Rowling, would be angry with her and demand that she be arrested and held responsible for the death of Harry's parents or Dobby. No, responsibility there falls completely and totally on Voldemort. He was doing what he intended to do, unfolding the beautiful story that she had crafted and formed and to bring about her ultimate intentions and purposes, the author's complete sovereignty and the character's responsibility, merging hand in hand. You see, as we've been working our way through the book of Romans, as Paul has been communicating to the church in Rome and to us here, the church in Elizabeth City today, uh, he's been, in chapter 9, giving us insight, uh, peeling back the curtain a little bit to give us insight to the great divine author of all things and his sovereignty and his control over everything that extends to uh, the rise and fall of nations and the growth and fall of hairs on heads, to the redemption and salvation of sinners and the passing over and condemning of other sinners, rooted not in what we have done but flowing out of the mercy, the grace, and the purpose of our God. Why has Paul been focusing on the sovereignty of God? Because the question has come up, is he unfaithful to his promises? Has he broken his covenant? Why are these questions coming up? Because Paul is a Jew. He's descended from Abraham, who God made these initial promises to. And as he looks around, and as other Jews and Gentiles are looking around, what they're seeing is is that there's not a whole lot of Jews that are embracing the promise of the gospel and seeing that Jesus is the one who came to save sinners. It's Gentiles who are coming to faith. Does this mean that God's word has fallen false, that he hasn't kept his promises? Paul, seeking to defend God's honor, and uphold His character, points us to His sovereign purposes. God hasn't broken His covenant. God is unfolding and writing the story just as He intended and just as He promised. That there are some who are children of promise. There are some who are children of flesh. There are those that God chooses to show mercy to and those that God chooses to harden. Those that are vessels that He formed and crafted as vessels of dishonorable use, destined for destruction, and those that He formed and fashioned of vessels of mercy, that He might unfold and demonstrate the glory of His grace. God is keeping His promises, and He is saving every single sinner that He intended. But what we're going to see this week is that just as we can look at a story and look at the author's sovereign intention and purposes, and then also look at it again and look at the the character's responsibility in the midst of it, here, Paul, as he's answering again this question, why is Israel not being saved? Why are there not more Jews coming to Christ? Here, Paul is going to begin to Draw our focus and our intention and help us look at it again from a different angle, from the angle of the human responsibility, from Israel's responsibility. The problem from God's sovereign purposes, He hasn't broken His covenant. He's kept and done everything that He intended and He promised. Where does the responsibility fall? It falls on Israel. They have broken the covenant. So let's turn and look together. In Romans 9, uh, this, we're starting in verse 30. If you're following along one of the black Bibles there in your seats, this is on page 946. We're going to look at verses 30 uh, in, verse, in chapter 9, going down through verse 4 in chapter 10. So please follow along with me as we hear from God's Word. What shall we say then? that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They've stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Brothers, it's my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own they did not submit to god's righteousness for christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes let's pray our sovereign creator who who are we who is humanity that you would consider us that you would form and make and shape us in your image the pinnacle of your creation. And and who are we that in our rebellion against you, you would pursue and, and come to us, redeeming and saving a people for yourself, speaking to us through your word. We pray this morning that you would continue that pursuit. We pray and ask that you would continue to pour out and evidence your mercy and your grace upon us, that you would open up our hearts, our eyes, our minds, that you would open up your word and you would apply it to us, that we would grow in our understanding of the sufficiency of Jesus and our deep, deep need for him. Would you glorify yourself through the reading and the preaching of your word? In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Why are more Jews not being saved? Paul is addressing this question. It's not God's fault, Paul says. He's looking at the situation and the the circumstances. And notice, he, he lays out the context, and what everybody's witnessing and experiencing. Look there in verse 30. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. That is, a righteousness that's by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. This is confusing from a human perspective. We think about the way that that our culture and our world and humanity in general thinks. I mean, look at what is going on. We've already seen Paul lay out for us early on in chapter 1 of the, the unrighteousness of humanity, but particularly focusing on the unrighteousness of the Gentiles. They did not have God's written law. They had evidence of Him in the world that He existed But they did not pursue His righteousness. They were not pursuing and engaging Him. They weren't seeking to orient their lives in conformity to who He was and how He called humanity to live. They were in rebellion. Perverse rebellion. Not as bad as they could be. No, God extends grace and mercy and prevents us from being as wicked and as sinful as we could. But these Gentiles were worshiping false gods. They were sacrificing their children. They were using their bodies for all sorts of distorted sexual purposes, even in the worship of these false gods that they were proclaiming. And and it's these people that you're saving God? Not just one or two there. I might could understand that, but in droves? by the thousands you're just telling us Paul of the sovereign mercy of God and they're coming to faith what in the world why why aren't you saving Israel the ones that had your law that had your rules that understood who you were that you gave them the scriptures and look at their lives by and large. They are the more moral culture. They they aren't working on the Sabbath. They're maintaining at least a sexuality that on the outside looks more in conformity to your Scriptures. They pray frequently. They go to worship you. They give money to the poor. They proclaim your name. They sing songs. They, they live differently with all the rules and dietary restrictions. I mean, look at the burden you've placed on them. And they continue to follow you in doing them. Why would you not save them? If, you were, if it worked like this and you were looking into the future and you were thinking, who would it be that I would save and redeem? Surely it would be the ones who are living moral, religious righteous lives but that's not what we see that is not what god is doing that is not who is coming to faith in jesus why is that paul says well it's because the gospel is not about works it's because the gospel is not based on what you do You see, Paul emphasizes that here. The Gentiles obtained this righteousness, this right standing with God that they weren't initially even pursuing themselves. Why? Well, it's because it comes by faith. Do you see that in verse 30? This righteousness that they have, it was a righteousness that is by faith. But Israel who oriented their lives, who saw it as one of the chief things that they would boast of and brag about over all the nations was the fact that they had God's law and we will keep it. And look down on anybody else who doesn't. They are not being saved. Why? Notice what Paul says. Why? In verse 32, he answers the question because they did not pursue it, this law, this right relationship with God. They didn't pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. You see, there's nothing wrong with the law in and of itself. The law is good. It's holy. It's righteous. It's honey on our lips. It reveals to us our need. But they were approaching the law in the wrong way. They were approaching the law as if it was based on their works and that was the means by which they would be accepted and made right with God. And Paul is saying no. This is why Israel isn't being saved. They're stumbling over the stone in the room. Notice what he says. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in Him will not be put to shame. Would God really put something in our lives, and in our world that would cause us to stumble, that would be offensive to us? Surely God would never offend us. That's one of the chief sins of our day, offending someone, hurting their feelings. But notice, our God is not above offending us And what is the offense that is here? He sends one. He sends the means of His salvation that says and proclaims loudly and boldly from the very beginning that Israel missed that it's not based on you and what you do. You need another And the whole time, Israel's looking at themselves and they trip over the Christ. They stumble over Jesus and His message and the proclamation of the Gospel that Paul has been proclaiming from town to town to town. And where did he start first? The Gospel is to the Jews first and also to the Gentiles. Every synagogue he goes into, some would believe, but then you know what they would do? when he begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah and the only way to salvation is by faith in him and that this good news message is for the Gentiles also, they reacted and rebelled and would run him out of town, stone him, beat him, leave him for dead because of the offense. My actions aren't enough? I'm not better than those people over there? You mean I need as much help as those wicked sinners out there need? Surely I'm not that bad. Surely God is impressed with all of the good deeds I have done. Paul says, no, no. You're approaching the law as if it is based on works and that based on your works, God will accept you. And Paul says that it is not. It is a gospel of grace and a gospel of mercy. And the reason that the Jews are not being saved and turning to Christ is because they can't let go of their righteousness they can't let go of their good works. Sometimes we, we, we think of there's licentiousness, complete and total rebellion against God's laws and casting and throwing them all off. And the opposite of that is legalism. Throwing ourselves into seeking to obey God's law with all that is in us. But what Paul is telling us here is that they aren't opposites of one another. They're just two sides of the same coin that are both in opposition to the gospel that says you must turn and hope and rest in Jesus who is the only cure for your rebellion and your self-righteousness. We still fall into this way of thinking that our value is based on our performance and what we do. We compare ourselves to people all the time, not just as adults, but as children too. You find yourselves in your classroom, boys sizing up and seeing, who's the funniest kid in here? I bet you could name him, couldn't you? Funniest kid in your class or on your team? Who's the most athletic? Who won the game last time and did you lose? What does that mean about you that you're not the funniest, that you're not the most athletic, that you lose more than you win? Or girls looking at who's the most popular in your circle of friends? Are you in that circle or not? What do you need to do to get yourself in there? If I could only dress a, a certain way or, or, or attend a certain uh, uh, party or go to this or go to that, maybe they would let me in. And if I could be a part of that group, it's based on what I do. Where you compare and you evaluate yourself based on uh, what you're wearing, how you look, your weight, your, the weight of your wallet, the weight of your body, The amount of friends you have, what neighborhood you live in, what school you're going to, whether you have children or don't, what they're doing or they're not doing. All the time we're comparing ourselves to other people, thinking that our worth is wrapped up in, are we living up to the standards and expectations of those around us so that I'll be accepted? Or, even if I'm not being accepted by a lot of people, let me find somebody else that I can look better than so that I can look down upon them and feel better about myself. But what what Paul is telling us here is that the good news of the gospel is that God is offering us a way of life that is disconnected from performance. Because that performance-minded mindset overflows into the way that we think we relate to God, too. That God will be more pleased with me if, if I had attended church all five Sundays last month, but I missed one. And I know that one family, they were there more. Well, what about... This morning, with what you put in here, you think God's more pleased with you based on the amount of zeros at the end? Or what you left in your wallet that you didn't put in? That now God is more happy and more delighted in you because of your gifts here? What about the amount of time that you pray or don't pray? Is your status before the Lord changing because of that? Hear what Paul is saying. The way that God relates to His people and the way that He relates to humanity is not through works. It is through grace. It is through faith and trusting and resting and relying on Him. We are overwhelmed with the burden and the pressure to do, 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 and be, 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 so that we will be loved, we will be welcomed, we will be invited, we will be connected. The Jews were living out their relationship to God, thinking that it was all based on what they could do. And they were confident that they were doing a good job and that God was pleased with them. And Paul here is saying, no, it's not based on what you do. And that offends us. Your good deeds are not enough. Your good works in your own strength do not please God. In fact depending on why you are doing good things, actually could be offending God even more. Notice where Paul goes. Notice in verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. This is just a side note. We're going to see as we continue through these chapters of Romans. Romans. Here, Paul has been emphasizing and focusing on the supreme sovereignty of God in all aspects of life, including who is saved and who is not. God is in control and in charge of everything. But that doesn't leave Paul's response to being, well, then it doesn't matter whether I pray. It's actually because I worship and follow the sovereign God who is over all things that I can be confident that when I pray, the one I'm praying to can actually work and do something. The sovereignty of God, doesn't, Paul doesn't use that as an excuse not to care about the lost or to pray for the salvation of those who are going to hell. No, it motivates him to pray to the only one who has the power to change hearts and redeem and save sinners. And it doesn't lead Paul to not share the gospel because the God who has uh, determined all things has also determined the means. And guess how God saves and redeems sinners through the sharing of the gospel, through the prayers of his people. We'll see that in a couple of weeks. Come back. But notice what Paul says. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They are zealous they are dedicated they are throwing their passion into obeying god and you see what the result is what's paul's prayer in verse one he's praying that they would be saved the reason he's praying that they would be saved is because as long as they are focused on thinking that what they do will merit their salvation before God, they remain lost. The more good deeds they do, thinking that it will impress God, the more judgment and responsibility they're heaping on themselves for their rebellion. Self-righteousness is actually rebellion against God. Do you see that? For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. God says there's only one way for you to be saved. Your heart, your life, your situation, your circumstance is so dire. You are dead Your only hope is in Me. You must look to My provision for your righteousness. Not in yourself. Not in what you can do. But only in what I can give to you. And God has said, the Gospel is the power. The power of salvation for all who believe. To the Jew first also to the Gentile. And in the proclamation of the gospel, we saw in chapter 1 of Romans, the righteousness of God is revealed. And how is the righteousness of God revealed? Not through works, not through religious efforts, but through faith. Faith in what Jesus has done for you. And here, what the Jews are doing is they're living and orienting their lives around obeying and following God's law and saying, look, God, aren't you impressed? Look at how good I am. Aren't you pleased with me? I'm so glad that I give these alms to you. I'm so glad that I pray multiple times a day. I'm so glad that I keep the food laws and I'm not like those other people. Remember, that was Jesus' evaluation of the Pharisees, the most religious, moral people of his day. In fact, Jesus said, your only hope of being saved would be if your righteousness would surpass theirs. It wasn't enough. And in fact, here, what Paul is saying is because the good news And the proclamation of the gospel is that you must turn from your own self-dependency and self-sufficiency and rest and look and call out to one to do what you can't as long as you resist it, as long as you continue to think that Christianity is all about attending church, giving money, keeping laws and rules, and not being bad like those people out there. You've missed the point. You are not submitting to God's law. You are in as much rebellion against God as the Gentiles that he mentioned in chapter 1. Do you remember what their lives looked like? It was all sorts of sexual distortion. Not just heterosexual sexual distortion, but homosexual sexual distortion. As God gave them over to the passions of the flesh, to continue in their debased and corrupted minds and hearts, lying, murder, deceit. But here, God is just as offended at the Israelites' self-righteousness. In fact, He's giving them over. Giving them over to their own perceptions, their exalted perceptions of themselves. Do you realize that? Again, the opposite of rebellion and unlawful living is not legalism. And the opposite of legalism is not licentiousness. The opposite of both is the gospel, is the cross of Christ. It's claiming and saying, I have no hope because of my sin. And my righteous and my good deeds will not save me. Hear this message this morning. If you're here thinking that if you were to be asked this question, if you were to stand before God, if you were to die today, and God were to ask you, why should I let you into my kingdom? And if you have any response that has to do with what you have done, In your life, your good deeds, your good acts, your church attendance, your prayer, you're not doing certain things that people out there do. God is not satisfied with that answer. That answer reflects the heart of one who is still in rebellion against God, who is still thinking, I can earn and merit my way before him. And Paul says, no. The only hope that we have. It doesn't matter how uh, dedicated you are. It doesn't matter how passionate you are and the songs that you sing and the money that you give or the church that you attend or the good deeds that you do and how much volunteer work you've done throughout the world. If you aren't looking to Jesus, the result will be the same as the most sinful, wicked, immoral person. And that is No salvation, Paul says. So what hope is there? What hope is there? What does he say in verse 4? Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Are you burdened, feeling the pain, the pressure, to feel like I have to perform, to measure up to everybody around me, and to get God to love me and accept me? Paul says, hear this good news. Jesus is the end of all of that. You never had to. The, gospel, the, the Old Testament laws are pointing forward to what Jesus would do. But when you come to Christ, He's the end of that kind of performance living and that performance posture before God. You are accepted and brought into a relationship with God because of the righteousness that Jesus has secured for you. Your debt is so big, you never could have paid for it. And the entry fee into heaven is so high, you could never afford that either. You need one who would come and do what you could not afford to do, who would live perfectly in this world, never accruing any debts of his own due to his sin and his rebellion, who would live perfectly in such a way that any time any law came up and the question was, in this law, have you loved God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And have you loved your neighbor as yourself? Every single one of us would have to say, no, 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 no. But Jesus could say, yes, I have pleased my Father fully and completely. The gospel says when you look to Jesus in faith, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he has done, All of that is credited to you. And what is transferred to Jesus is your sin, your debt, your rebellion. This is the gospel that Paul's proclaiming. And it is offensive. If you think you have any merit to bring before God, we must recognize our poverty. We must recognize our deep need for Christ. But notice the good news. That Christ is for everyone who believes. Are you a Gentile? The gospel is for you. Are you a Jew? The gospel is for you. Jesus will save the rebellious. Jesus will save the self-righteous if you turn to Him in faith. The means of salvation is the same for the American and the Iranian, for the homosexual and the heterosexual. For, for the one who has been worshiping false gods their entire life, and for one who has been attending church since before they could remember. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus saves sinners, and all of us are sinners and in desperate need of Him. This brings great freedom, because everything that you've done in your past no longer needs to haunt you. When you come to Christ, any of those sins that bring up and well up shame and grief and tears and despair, you can hear the good news of the gospel that Jesus has dealt with that for you as you look to Him in faith because it's not based on what you do, it's on what Jesus has done. And as you live out the Christian life and you stumble and you fail, You miss a week of church. You disobey those who are over you in authority, as the commandment called us today. You yell at your children. You cheat on your taxes. You join and become a member of a white supremacist organization. Is forgiveness there for that man? Yep. Because Jesus' blood and his life is sufficient To save the vilest of sinners and the most self-righteous religious person there is. Do you fit anywhere in there? Hear the good news of the gospel today. Jesus is on offer to you. Would you come to him? You may say, why are you offering this? I thought God was sovereign over all things. God uses his word to open up hearts. Do you hear your need this morning? You need Jesus. While it is still today, flee to the one and only one who can save you. He will do it. Christian, are you burdened by your sin? Are you burdened by shame? No, that Christ has forgiven you and your relationship with God has never been and it never will be based on your works. Jesus lived for you. Jesus died for you. And the Father delights in you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the gospel message that we see here proclaimed in Romans. It's not based on our works. It's not based on our dedication. It's Jesus. Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is our hope. Jesus is our salvation. May we rest and cling only on Him, not in anything we have done. Amen.